welcome to The Hammer Factor, where we help successful athletes and professionals share their genius with the world. I'm John Grace, your host here at The Hot Seat, and now it's time to light this fire. All right, in this episode of the show, we are extremely stoked to have arguably the fastest single speeder in the world, holding eight national titles and with thousands of miles of racing under his belt. Welcome to The Hot Seat, Gordon Wadsworth. All right, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, the seat is hot, man. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no reason to be nervous, man. There's nothing to be nervous about here. How are you doing? How are you doing with the whole quarantine thing and the current state of affairs? We're we're well, man. I mean, not to make light of the health challenges that a lot of people are facing, but you know, my wife Emily and I are doing our part and staying staying pretty distanced. But that's that's kind of a part of our lives anyhow. I mean, we live in a little town um, in southwestern Virginia. Uh, we live on a dirt road, and we don't see a lot of people <laughs> unless we leave our little pocket to to go out and see them. And and so it's been um, it's been kind of nice in its way to reconnect with you know, each other a lot in our area and doing rides that we don't normally do this time of year. Um, so, you know, we're trying to do our part and stay, stay safe and stay red and stay distance. And, um, yeah, it, it is, it is, it is what it is for now. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the un- unintended consequences of all this are, you know, there's a lot of, a lot more family time going on and I mean, we're taking advantage of it. Sounds like you yeah. are. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge, you know, we get all, we all get so busy in our day to days that if we can reconnect with that, that's, that's a, that's a massive benefit. I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the next thing. And when you take all those next things and you throw them out the window, I think it's good to, to teach us all to be present a little bit more. Yeah. In the moment. That's That's so hard to do too. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, unless the whole world grinds to a halt, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, before we dig into this interview, can you share something with our audience that most people don't know about you? Oh, man. Um, <clears throat> I... I I There's a lot of days I don't think I'm very good at bikes. <laughs> <laughs> now, how on earth is that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we all... Um, <clears throat> I didn't actually think about how I would answer that question. I thought I'd let that one come a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we all we you know, we all have these moments of, of I won't say doubt, but um, I think I think we all have these times where we consider that we aren't what do they call it like imposter syndrome or something where you think that you're not you know you're faking somehow and I think everybody has a little bit of that but I won't say that that's that but um you know I'm, I'm a person just like everybody uh, I may ride a bike with one gear really really fast most of the time but there's definitely days that uh it doesn't always feel that way and it doesn't always click and the struggles of somebody like me who have have been and seen a lot of places a lot of places with the bike are just as just as tough man you don't it doesn't ever get easier you just go faster is what they say right um but yeah that's that's something a lot of people probably don't probably might might assume but don't necessarily know um yeah yeah i think uh i think as you as you labeled it the imposter syndrome <laughs> i mean it's easy to second guess yourself no matter what level you're on yeah you know so i think whether you're starting or been doing it for decades it's it's easy to do that how do you fight it off So 
I mean, like we all do, you know, I think that, I think that one of the benefits of, of that discomfort sometimes is you're really surprised when you do do well. <laughs> um, you know, the more that I get to do, the more confidence you have in your ability to, to tackle challenges. Um, and so no matter how you're feeling on a start line or no matter how you're feeling going into something, cause life's more than just bikes, right? Um, you know, you, you, I have built a really, a really great portfolio of experiences that I can look on and say, man, I tackled that. I did that. I conquered that. I felt great in that. Um, or, Hey, I had a, I had a bad day and I learned this from it. So I'm carrying that into it. Right. So I think that that's, that's part of it, you know, is, is acknowledging successes and building some confidence from that. That's also kind of conveniently one of the things I enjoy most about racing bikes, riding bikes too, and world travel and getting going out the door <laughs> is that kind of surprising yourself with your abilities. Um, that's, that's so much fun for me. Before we get too deep into that subject, which I want to touch on later, um, where are you from? How did you, how did you get into bikes? What was, what was a young Gordon like? <laughs> so I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, little, little Southwestern Virginia mountain town that's grown really, really beautifully in the past decade or so. And, and I grew up there and I remember thinking, like, this is a cool town to grow up, and it's a great town to to end up. But everything in between was was I expected would be elsewhere in in a big city or something. And um, at some phase, I you know I went to college outside of Richmond, Virginia, and then came back to town, and then kind of bumped around for a few years. I was a ski tech, trying to do bikes as hard as I could. I worked in finance for a little while. Again, bikes kind of as a through line for all that. But then I met my wife, Emily, and we we bounced around the southeast. We lived in Tennessee. We lived in Georgia. Um, we lived in Kentucky. And eventually, we kind of put down on paper where, you know, all the different places that we, we thought we might really enjoy living. Um, places like Chattanooga and Asheville or Brevard and Knoxville, like all these neat southeast mountain towns. And Roanoke just kind of kept popping up on our list. You know, I'm from, again, Roanoke, and she's from Floyd County, Virginia. So when we looked at, at what we wanted in a hometown, Roanoke had it all. I mean, it had this great mountain bike community, this great outdoor scene. It's got tremendous trails and amazing roads and Blue Ridge Parkway and backcountry, single track, and all this awesome stuff. And um, so we we came back, ended up back here, and uh, – Love it, man. It's we live outside of Roanoke now in a town called Shawsville, um, on a little uh, horse farm, way tucked back in the boonies. <laughs> we love it back here. It's beautiful up there. I know that country quite well. Yeah, love it. Um, but man, I got, I got. You know, my family's not riders. We're not, um, we're not all cyclists. I, I wasn't born onto a bike by any means. I don't have a whole lot of memories as a young kid of bikes. I mean, they were, they were toys, playthings. But then, I do remember at one point my sister. I got two older sisters and my oldest sister brought home uh, a road bike from college, like her freshman or sophomore year. She'd, she'd been a runner and had, had picked up a bike at like a local bike shop and ended up, she worked there for a couple of years. And I just remember that that was a moment where it was like, whoa, this thing is more than just a toy, right? This is a, this is a really amazing tool to go farther, faster than you can really get otherwise. Um, and I remember, I do remember that moment and from there, like played bikes played bike racer for a couple of years. <laughs> and then in college, I kind of really got, got stoked on the idea of racing more competitively. And I, I was racing at the time. I got a really good deal with, um, Gary Fisher bikes, you know, that then got bought by Trek. And so I raced for Gary Fisher for several years when, when 29 inch wheels were a new thing. And then, um, got, got doing with Trek for a couple of years. And then, 
just have, have ridden a really awesome wave of support from a bunch of different folks in the industry, um, and continued to expand the types of racing and the ways of doing bikes. And, and that's, that's been a huge blessing you know, to the point that it's, it really is a through line. It introduced me to my wife, Emily. It, it gave me the job that I have where I work at bikeflights.com. Um, you know, so it's, it's been an awesome, awesome ride. <laughs> Were you always on a mountain bike? No, not necessarily. I, I started racing, um, racing mountain bikes, but I, I don't, I don't discriminate and I, I never really have, you know, I thought for a while I might be a really good crit racer and I, I was, um, and I, but I, I, I've raced road bikes, I've raced mountain bikes, I've done short format criteriums and short tracks and that sort of thing. And, and of course a lot of long format, some road races, a bunch of ultra endurance and marathon distance mountain bike races. So I, I, you know, people, people will kind of give me grief if I show up to an event on a bike with gears, but I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to go for the bike that's going to be the most fun. And sometimes that's a, that's a gravel race bike. Sometimes it's a single speed. Sometimes it's a, you know, big travel, full suspension bike. It just is about whatever's going to be the best carrier for the experience for me. Following you on Instagram, I've definitely realized you don't discriminate against bikes, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> uh, tell me about the transition from being into it and being professional. How did that happen for you? Yeah, well, so that that happened kind of for me at a time when I think that that shift happened in the industry. I mean, when I was coming up in bikes, you know, you you ha- you saw Ned Overend on the on the Mountain Dew can dispenser in the break room. You know, like mountain biking was an extreme sport, right? It was a thing that was was like dirt bikes and monster trucks, and it was like this this sort of wild extreme thing. And with that came a lot of sponsorship money. I mean, we had teams like um, you know Trek Volkswagen and Volvo Cannondale and and Specialized and all these big teams with big budgets, and they would have these huge rigs and it was a totally different sport than it is now in 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 those capacities um you know we had the teva mountain games where there was you know massive payouts and it was it was a way you could really survive as a professional um and about the time i was coming up through bikes you know we that really shifted and i it started to shift kind of in the early 2000s certainly by um you know the the mid 2000s when those budgets weren't available anymore and people started to shift away from, and I don't know if mountain biking's not extreme enough. It sure seems to me when I see, you know, Brandon Seminook sending it at Red Bull Rampage, it certainly seems extreme to me. Um, but you know, something about the format of cycling as a professional has changed and it's, it's, it's really changed into a lifestyle sport, which I think is ultimately healthier. It certainly means fewer visits to the emergency room, um, than sending it like Seminook. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, so, so to answer the question, what it looks like to be a professional has changed in the same time I've transitioned to, to being more of a professional athlete. And, and so while I still maintain a professional license, um, actually this first year I haven't second year, cause it's 2020 now that I haven't bought a pro racing license. Um, and, and we can talk about that if you want, but because it really is more of a lifestyle sport, you know, the support that I get from sponsors and the opportunities I get as an athlete are, are available now because of what we share, right? Because of content, because of, um, you know, writing and photography and, and sharing the experience. And so I think as, as, as someone who does it as part of my profession, you know, doing bikes, um, that that's shifted a lot. It's no longer about chasing a, a paycheck from scoring points. 
not for most of the professional athletes out there anymore, you know? Right. Um, there's, there's maybe a spectrum between, between Olympic hopeful professional athlete that draws a paycheck versus, uh, Instagram influencer <laughs> that just is really good with a, a, a camera filter. <laughs> um, and, and I think I slide more towards the athlete side of that because I, I do really love competition and doing well in it. But yeah, I mean, I think as, as more of a lifestyle athlete or adventure athlete professional now than a, than a bike racing professional, um, it's, it's an awful lot of fun. And that transition kind of happened when those opportunities dried up a little bit, you know, it's hard to chase Olympic points and it's hard to chase, you know, upgrade points when there's fewer and fewer of those events and they're farther apart and and the opportunities to support that are fewer and fewer. I mean, I bet you, I don't know statistics on it, but I bet you right now in the US, there's probably fewer than 25, maybe less than that, prof like full-time professional athletes on the bike, on the mountain bike, that don't have a side gig. Right. That's sort of a sign of a lot of things. I think that's, I think that's outdoor industry as a whole. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to be a professional athlete in, yeah. in the outdoor industry. Um, you know, even in an industry, I mean, mount, you know, biking is a, is a, is a big industry, you yeah. know, but, but still it's tough to be a professional in, in that realm. Tell me about the pro license. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So in, in the U S here, we have USA cycling, um, is our designated body for governing cycling. And, the, and I say designated because the international Olympic committee, the IOC is what kind of really matters, right? Anytime you look at a sport that has the Olympics, uh, or that there is an Olympic sport for that kind of designates your governing body and, and USAC, um, I don't think I'm going to disappoint anybody here, but they, they, they're struggling because I think that they don't contribute to the fundamental value of the sport. They don't make it more fun, <laughs> they, you know, and, and I realized that, that a governing body doesn't always make it more fun, right? They're not necessarily there to make it more fun, but in a sport like cycling, that is such a passion sport for you know all the almost all of the participants um it, it they need to they need to realize that they need to recognize that that's a part of it so i i last year um recognized that it it was not that money that sponsors were spending to buy prof a professional license within the US domestically that license is you know it's $370 or something like that i mean it's not a massive pile of money but it's money that was like i i'm you know, I'm not going to buy this out of the gate in the year because I'm not sure that I'm going to do any USA cycling sanctioned events, you know, with the rise of with fewer and fewer mountain bike races going in that direction and with gravel cycling really taking off like it has wasn't I'm not planning to do any road racing this year. Um, if I were to travel internationally to use that license, um, I, I, I would consider purchasing it. But even more and more international races aren't doing that. So last year I said to heck with that. I'd rather I'd rather make that donation to to Nika, um, uh -huh. you know, or, or or another group that I think is putting that money to really good use, growing the sport. Where USAC just wasn't for me. Um, so yeah, for, for our <laughs> listeners who don't know, Nika is the I don't know the organization of um, you know basically high school teams and yeah, things like National this. Interscholastic Cycling Association, yeah. um, and they have amazing. Uh, youth support through middle school and high school level. And, and I think they do it in a way 
which reflects the absolute best parts of the sport. You know, the bike is such a carrier for life lessons and they do an awesome job of, of presenting those too. I mean, some of the Nika leagues are thousands of kids. I mean, they'll have race weekends in any of their member states that are a thousand kids. You know, show me a grown up adult bike race that has a thousand adults a week. <laughs> yeah. At, and in any state. And it's like, this is what it's about, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, Nika's, Nika's where it's at, definitely. You know, the, I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole because it is a rabbit hole. <laughs> I've, I've, I've definitely talked about this, not only with cycling athletes, but other athletes. Yeah. I mean, even like in paddle sports, the U, the U.S. Canoe Association, which is kind of the governing body, they've lost a lot of relevance. They got into this squabble over stand-up paddling with the U.S. Surfing Federation. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> over who should control that sport. And it's just, just like you say, it's kind of lost relevance. Uh, I don't – it's 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 – I don't want to get too deep into it because I have a lot to say about this topic, but, <laughs> but I think, I think the governing, bo governing bodies need to look at how they're going to improve and grow the sport and not just who's going to represent that sport in the Olympics. Okay. I would love to know, closing that out, I, I would love to see examples of, of other sports or disciplines where people think their governing bodies are doing really well. Um, I'm sure they're out there. I hope they're out there. And and <laughs> rules aren't just always killjoys. <laughs> but uh, I, I would love to see, I would, you know, if there's a listener question opportunity, <laughs> I would love to know somebody that thinks their their sports got it right. You yeah, know, I'm with that you. they're doing good stuff. Um, I'm yeah. with you. I haven't run across it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Um, but I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it exists yeah. on some level. Yeah. What a, What about a mentor, Gordon? Have you ever had a mentor or or anyone that kind of filled that role in your career? That's a really good question. Um, I've been really blessed to have a lot of them. Um, you know, not not having a, a parent who was an a, who was a, an athlete, not having a. Um, a youth coach or a, a college developmental coach or anything i've i've had i've had to find those mentors along the way and and sometimes different mentors for different capacities and um roanoke is a great town because it has a it's had cyclists for a long time so there's all of these kind of um local heroes so i definitely spent some time when i was working as a ski tech and then in finance part-time trying to kind of make it as a bike racer I definitely spent some time with some of those older um, men in particular who kind of showed me a lot of the ropes. Um, I've had a lot of privilege to be in contact with a lot of really good riders over the years. Um, a, a good friend of mine, Sean Tevendale, who owns Blue Ridge Cyclery that you'll see on our race jerseys, um, has always been there uh, and a really good um, partner. Um, I would say he's a mentor in the capacity that he's, he, you know, he was a professional athlete that did 24 hour races and then he opened a bike shop and was there for Emily and I in a time of need in our lives as well as in our racing world. Um, so that he, he's always been a, a, a source of, um, you know, input or guidance or support. So Sean definitely, 
I might be missing somebody, but we've, we've been really blessed to have a lot of people along the way who have helped us or given us opportunities to fail, <laughs> which I think is sometimes where a mentor really shows their stuff. Um, you know, and given us leeway to, to make our decisions too. You know, we've, we've, Emily and I have built a, a kind of racing program and, and field of support where, um, we, we have a lot of freedom. We have people that give us a lot of freedom with product and with money and with opportunities. And they say, Hey, you, you know, go make something great, go make something really worth, worth paying attention to. And, um, we're blessed for that. And, and so we've got all these cool people in our lives, but definitely Sean Tevendale. Um, yeah. Having a mentor, a strong mentor has been, is a trend among a lot of the athletes that we've had the yeah. opportunity to, to interview here. And I just can't stress that if you find a good mentor, you can skip so many steps up yeah, the absolutely. ladder. You know, it's such an important thing to, to get you where you want to go. Um, yeah. I always want to make sure I touch on that. Yeah, that's good. It's because I haven't had that one person, but it's been a conglomeration of a lot of people being involved in, in youth cycling and and uh, NICA and what we have here, the Virginia High School Series. And we have a really cool youth camp called Cutaway Mountain Bike Camp that does a, just an amazing program. And, and Emily and I have been involved in that for the past five years, I think. Um, that's really important to me because that, that opportunity to be that little bit of guidance or information and shorten that curve to, to getting the most out of riding is so important to us. Yeah, there's a huge shift away from buying things, especially during, yeah. you know, this time of quarantine yeah. and COVID-19. Uh, the shift to experiences is just being more and more prevalent. What? Tell me a little bit more about that camp. Is it a youth camp? Is it for adults? Yeah, um, it's a youth camp. So Cutaway Bike Camp was founded, I think, 10 years ago by a friend named Andy Guptill. And Andy was kind of... Um, he was kind of one of the like great hopes of, of American cycling is USAC development rider, or then it was Norba, um, USCF, US cycling federation and, and Norba, the mountain bike arm. Um, he was like a, you know, USA development rider. Um, he's, he's my age, he's early thirties. And he, um, he works at a school called the Miller school of Albemarle, which is a, a, a boarding school, a prep school in central Virginia outside of Charlottesville. And he, sort of wanted to develop this, I won't say elite because it's not all performance focused, but, but high level experience cycling program there. And he did that at the school and grew it, started to grow that out of the school about 10 years ago into cutaway bike camp. And now they have uh, three different camps that they run that are summer camps from Miller school, which has amazing trail on site. They have a bunch of day camps that they run as well, but they run a a an enduro camp the fat the, for the last two years, <laughs> which is really special. And they have um, Harlan Price and Sue Haywood. And this year, uh, I'm going to join them in enduro camp and get my tail handed to me by a bunch of little rippers. Um, <laughs> and then after that, that some of those kids stay over into race camp, and a lot of new kids come in. And in race camp, we have a really amazing group of coaches including myself who come in and I'm there throughout the whole camp because it's like the best 
two weeks ever. Um, but then we also have all these amazing folks like Jeremiah Bishop and, and, and other riders from the area who are incredibly talented riders with a huge wealth of experience. And we just like brain dump on these kids. We do race simulations. We talk about tactics and nutrition and, and physiological well-being. Like we talk, we do all of the geeky racer stuff. And then, um, and that's a, that's a weekend camp at Miller school. And then we do a travel camp, which is really when the fun begins. Cause we take off the race jerseys and put the baggy shorts on and we go and we experience all these amazing areas in Virginia and the, the eye-opening moments for these kids when they realize that mountain biking isn't just race numbers and like, and circles and pocket parks. It is big backcountry rides in the George Washington national forest. It is Stokesville, Virginia and sitting in creeks after your ride. It is riding ridges in Douthat and touching West Virginia when you started your ride in Virginia. And like, it's just this, it's such an eye opening experience. And these kids realize like, wow, this, this thing, right. Speaking about things and, and experiences, this thing in the form of a bicycle, is a is a tool for so much experience um and it it and every experience is different whether it's the same lap of your pocket park or whether it is a totally big epic mountain ride it, it is never the same experience twice and that's i think what makes it really special so cutaway bike camp is um something that's near and dear to, to emily and i both and and is such a cool it's such a cool experience for those kids and some of them you know now that andy has broken it up into enduro race and travel camp too those kids really can can get exactly what they want out of it um and and kids aren't coming to race camp that just want to do bikes and they're not coming to travel camp if they want to race and i mean some are and that's cool um but it it, it all the options are available and i think that that's that's so cool. And, and cutaway camp I think is unique and really exceptional. It's one of the best you know, organized camps I've ever seen, but it, it's also not unique. There are other programs like that, um, uh, around, which is super rad. I want to go back. I mean, as a counselor, I, I it's like the best week ever for me, <laughs> best two weeks. Like it's literally what I want to do every day. <laughs> so how many kids go to this camp? They're limited a little bit. They have, um, enduro camp is pretty small. You know, there's a little higher risk there. So I think it's like 30 or 40 kids race camp. They get closer to a hundred kids. It's usually like 70 to 85 kids. Um, and then travel camp is limited because we, we travel, right? So they have this group of sprinter vans that they pile the kids and bikes in. It's pretty bougie going down the road. Um, but, uh, that one I think is more like 50, 50 kids. Right. Um, and it's, it's not a cheap week, but it's not an expensive week. I, I don't know the costs, um, but it's, I, I remember looking last year and saying like value for money, especially when you compare it to other summer camps, because good sleepaway camps are expensive. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a solid value and they, they kit the kids out too. They get all this custom swag and they're like, it's, it's, it's radical. Yeah. What about, this is going off script a little bit, but I, there's some there's some cool things you touched on here I want to yeah. kind of dig a little deeper into. What is that, uh, tell me about the gratification you get from coaching. Oh, man. So first off, selfishly, it's just really fun. Kids are awesome. I'm high energy. Kids are high energy. I love going to sleep tuckered out at the end of the day, mentally and physically, and, and that'll do it. <laughs> Chasing around 85 kids during race camp will tucker you out. Um but uh, the other thing, too, is that 
that those kids, like you mentioned, you know, you have this opportunity to kind of mentor them and cut down the number of stair steps they've got to make or the number of mistakes they've got to to make to to have a really awesome experience every time they they stomp on the pedals. Um, and that's awesome because I've made a mountain of mistakes in in my journey, which was not, you know, was not a straight shot to having all the the opportunities we have right now. Um, and if I can cut that down for somebody and have them have a more direct line to the the best possible experience, then that's that's great. I mean, making making mistakes is a is an important part of life, but um, cutting that down for kids and showing them showing them how to have a good experience or be in there when they do make a mistake to kind of pick them up and say, "Hey, that happened. It's okay. We can we can cry about it for five minutes because uh-huh. we're kids, um, or because we're adults, and sometimes we need a good cry too. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that." Um, and then we can move on from it. We say, what do we learn? Um, yeah, so that's really cool. And getting to be a part of, you know, again, selfishly, getting to be a part of that learning experience teaches me. You know, I get to hang out with, um, you know, Jeremiah, who's a really good friend, or, or Ben King, who's a national road champion and Tour de France and Tour de Giro d'Italia competitor. I mean, I get to hang out with these guys who, who I seldom get to see and I rarely get to ride with casually um, and learn from them a little bit, you know? Yeah. I've learned a lot in those contexts. I've done a little bit of coaching. um, And I'll say outside of achieving a goal yourself, a close second is when you teach somebody something or you work with a student or even an adult and they achieve something. That's a close second to being able to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and I mean, from the perspective of bike camp, when you get to do that, you know, on mass and you have a bunch of kids that are hitting those, those goals all weekend. It's like, I mean, it's, it's just such a ride. It's such a ride. Yeah. Shifting gears. We, we touched on it a little bit as far as some trends in the industry, as far as the pro tour and, you know, sponsorships and whatnot. But what about, what about technology and bikes and, and what's, what's, what are you seeing going on right now? Bikes are so good right now. They are so good. Um, I, so I started really doing bikes in the late 90s, early 2000s, and we were riding cantilever brakes, which did not stop well. We were riding metal, you know, steel, and then some aluminum frames, um, and they were great fun. Like, they, we didn't know any different. They were great fun. But, you know, the Wonder Bikes then were still kind of not that far different. Um, now, the bike you have 20 years later Man, you can go into Blue Ridge Cyclery or The Hub or Sycamore Cycles down near you and you can pick out, you can spend $1,000 or $1,500 or two grand even if you want to get exotic and spend that on a mountain bike and get such a good bike and it's going to have a good suspension design. It's going to have good brakes and great, like it's going to be pretty lightweight. Stuff's going to last. Like it's, I'm just, I'm in total, I'm totally impressed by bikes right now. You know, I race for pivot cycles and industry nine and, and a couple other really amazing brands. And sometimes I'll lock into a bike to go out and do a training ride. And I'm just I'm like, man, I'm so <laughs> blessed. This bike is a rocket. You know, it's, it's their bikes are so good and they're so capable. And we, we now see, you know, bikes that are, that can do big drops and hits that are also 22 pound full suspension race bikes. And it's like, that is 
unheard of. And on the, on the drop bar side, you know, you have these gravel bikes. I mean, my pivot vault is my go-to drop bar bike for most of my riding. And that thing rips single track and it's, it's 19 pounds with a bunch of gear on it. Like they're amazing. And, and to me, what that means is that we are, we can focus on the experience. Um, and I think that's so cool. I did, I did a race last fall called unpaved, which is a gravel race. I came right home from single speed worlds in Slovenia and, and this race was going on and a friend puts it on. And so I kind of was like, Hey, you got a spot for me. And, um, I went up and raced this thing. And I remember like standing in the dark waiting for the start. There's about a thousand riders, right? This race has gotten big. Um, and I remember looking around and like the guy over there next to me is got jean shorts on in a non-ironic <laughs> way. This person over here is wearing a trash bag over their, their like flannel because it's cold and wet. And I'm like, I'm the minority here as a bike racer. These guys and gals came for an experience and their bikes are like, you know, salsa, whatever's and, and, and trek checkpoints and these kinds of things. And that, like the fact that these people could go out and they could spend, you know, thousand or 1500 bucks on a really good tool for adventure is so cool, man. Yeah. Um, on the high end, you know, we have electronic shifting. We have uh, my pivot uh, Mach 4 SL has a Fox Live valve that adjusts like a like a Formula One race car. And, you know, five thousand times a second, it's tweaking its its valving and it's getting being optimized. And it's like these bikes are so good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get a new bike about every five years. I'm one of those people who re ups about every yeah. four or five years. And every Ooh. time I get a new bike, I'm just blown away. <laughs> compared because yeah. i thought i had it good before <laughs> you go from the jeep river to the space shuttle <laughs> exactly <laughs> every time what what's your take on e-bikes they're all right um so <laughs> they're <laughs> go on i'm sorry i'm sorry i, no. I love asking this question because it's it's uh it, it's a good one it's polarizing for a lot of people mm-hmm. um I have a I have a pretty deeply evolved opinion. So in my day job, which is also bikes, I work for a company called bikeflights.com. We do bicycle shipping and I'm I'm director of special projects there. So that means I get to to build new cool stuff and 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 help riders get their bikes new cool places. And it's I really love what I do from the desk. Um and enables me a lot of flexibility. So e-bikes, I developed our e-bike shipping program, which when you pile batteries into a box all of a sudden they're dangerous goods they're controlled right from a very rudimentary perspective they are now dangerous (laughs) according to not me not you but the department of transportation right right? so immediately i I see i see a challenge um i think that e-bikes as a trail user present a lot of opportunity to get some different and more or maybe less mobile riders uh, onto trail. I think that they also represent a lot of challenge and how we meet that challenge in the next, I mean, really starting two or so years ago, how we meet those challenges is extremely important um, from a regulatory standpoint and also from a trail use standpoint as a, as a selfish. So like as a, as a person who tries to think, when I can, I recognize that. Like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity with e-bikes. Um, as a selfish, jealous trail user, I really value that that you know skiing earn your turns kind of approach. If I'm 65 miles out in the backcountry and I got there on foot from or you know by pedals from my door, 
that is such a dear experience to me. And I have, you have to train for that. You know, you have to be fit and capable for that. Um, and when you take down those barriers, I, I have a hard time not like feeling it in the gut a little bit. And I also recognize that, that what makes me safe in the backcountry is the fact that I've built up the competence to, to get out there. The fact that in my backpack is a saw and a lighter and a fire and a blanket and water filter. Like the fact that I've gone out here with all this stuff and if it hit the fan and it went really sideways, I, I would be, I could manage that. And the e-bike user you, you take down barriers, you know, you turbocharge their ability to get into trouble in, in one, one way. And I recognize that that's a very real risk to other forest users and to, um, the forest service and emergency personnel. So those are, those are risks. I, I don't, you know, I haven't done studies personally to know if their impact is that much greater. They tend to have big tires. The, most of them aren't like motorcycles. Um, you know, from my day job, I know that class one and two e-bikes that are pedal assist are pretty, they're pretty innocuous when it comes to how they differ from regular bicycles. So you can get farther, they're heavier, those sorts of things. But I don't think that, I don't think that they're necessarily a threat. What I do see are high powered throttle equipped e-bikes being a real, a real challenge. Um, because you give people a throttle and a motor and they're going to do stupid stuff. They just will. All you got to do is YouTube e-bike. And the first searches that come up are knuckle dragging bonehead jumps car at 40 miles an hour or, you know, idiot on bike path, like doing 50. And it's like that you give people those options and they take it to the worst possible place. And that the, the fact that that bike looks very much like my bike scares me <laughs> that's i think the greatest challenge we have to to navigate is how do we how do we separate those in a, in a way where we don't require for service personnel to be <laughs> be cyclists you know yeah so I, yeah i don't know full disclosure i was a i was a hater on the e-bikes early <laughs> on and I'm then i you. and then i tried one and it was really really fun um but it's such a slippery slope. I mean, it is yeah. a motorized vehicle yeah. in areas that are traditionally human powered. So, yeah. you know, obviously there's, you know, a demand for them. You know, the lithium ion technology is not going anywhere, but right. it is a slippery slope. I, it's going to be interesting to see how that's managed and the way it, um, you know, just the way it integrates itself in with cycling mm -hmm. in general. I heard Mike McCormick who puts on the Breck Epic and some of the best races out West refer to it as, um, you know, kind of take that tone of it's, it's the e-bikes not evil. It's not wrong. I, I don't personally enjoy riding them. They feel like heavy sloppy bikes to me. Um, but they are a real challenge and how we meet that challenge allows us a chance to redefine ourselves in, in the outdoor space a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't think that our like imbas and things are, I think there's so much money involved, you know, there's so much opportunity to make money, especially that that makes me nervous too. I mean, again, in my day job, the folks that I talk to, most of the folks I talk to about e-bikes are not cyclists. They don't have that love of the outdoors. They have a love of, of a quick trend that they can capitalize on or that they can squeeze the throttle and go fast. And that anecdotally kind of makes me nervous too. Um, but yeah, they, they, they could be, they could be awesome. They could be a real 
challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the industry as a whole, I do see the dollar signs. Um, the industry is yeah. definitely pushing this. They do too. <laughs> yep. and, but there could be a real easy backlash as far as, okay, well, if we're going to have to have the those cycles, then we're just going to yeah. limit cycling in general in this yep. area. You know, so right. Good observation. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how it all you know, I don't want to get too stuck on e-bikes, but <laughs> I mean, they're definitely, uh, they're definitely a thing, you know, they they're, are, they're not going away anytime soon. That's the truth. Um, what about, what about, what's your, what's your primary passions now? Um, what, 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 what stokes your boat right now? What floats your boat? What cranks my tractor? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Man, adventure, experience, sharing that, sharing it with, with both Emily, my wife, and also with our, our friends and our sort of community. We, I, I love adventure and experience and kind of being mindful in those places. We have been really lucky in the past six years, yeah, six, seven years, to, to race our bikes on pretty much every continent and have awesome experiences we share with friends or other people or, or share them digitally, you know? Um, and I love that. I'm so addicted to that. <laughs> it's quarantine makes that a challenge right now. Um, there's been a lot of throwback Thursday <laughs> moments, but, uh, even, even in our backyard though, we, we've really enjoyed getting out, but I, I love that. That that's just the best thing in the world to me. When did you first get into the multi-day adventures traveling to foreign countries? How did that all happen? Pisgah stage race, um, right in your backyard. My first, uh, a really good friend, Stratton Delaney, who owns Starlight Apparel and the Black Bibs, um, gave me an entry a few years back to do Todd Branham's Pisgah stage race. Back when it was in the fall, gnarly, it was long days, and I just got my tail whooped. <laughs> um, but something about that something about whooping my butt because my first ultra race was the same way i got my tail handed at the shenandoah 100 and i said done never be back and the first pisgah stage race was kind of like done never be back <laughs> and the next year i was back and the next year and the next year and i think i've done seven of them now um seven shenandoah 100s too or eight um and that's it man it is like it is like um free basing adventure and experience mm. and and sharing it in such a cool way i mean the stage races are are uh, both equal parts bike race and, and community event you know they are so cool because you get to know all these amazing people that have signed up and are camping right next to you or are showing up at the star line every day and um that's great in a context that we already know and love like pisgah or or the transylvania epic in pennsylvania um or the shenandoah 100 right in our backyard right um but when you take that and you pick it up and you drop it in, you know, the jungles of Brazil or you pop it in the southern islands of New Zealand um, in the, the southern Alps or, you know, freeing Africa, you know, Emily Thomas Turner and I went to Africa la 2017 um, and you all of a sudden you realize, you know, people are not so different. People are are invigorated by the outdoors and challenges and adventure. They want to share with each other. They want to challenge each other sometimes. Um, but when you get to share those experiences with other people, it is the most enriching and world expanding and shrinking at the same time experience. And that is, that's addictive. It is so addictive. Um, you know, the kind of bike nerd in me loves 
building out the right equipment or building out the right, you know, packing effectively and all that kind of stuff too. So it's kind of even the prep is a lot of fun, you know, and you know, how do you train for adventure? Well, you take adventures. <laughs> so like the training is really cool too. <laughs> what, which of those adventures, you know, racing in foreign countries and travels mm -hmm. stands out the most, which one's kind of, kind of a story you would want to share. Emily and I talk about that all the time. Um, like we, we, we really enjoy sharing because I have a terrible memory and she has the memory of an elephant. Like she just remembers every little detail. Um, and, and so we joke about that a lot. I, I have kind of memories for like time and space and she has memories of details. So I love uh, sitting out in a space and just soaking in the thing that we're doing. Um, I, you know, I, I, I loved the, our experience in New Zealand. I got to race with a friend, Sonia Looney, who's an amazing super athlete and superhuman. Um, and I raced with her again in Brazil uh, the next year. And she and I have raced together several times. Um, and, and I love racing with her. She's just a, a killer. Um, but uh, she and I had a really hard race. We, we battled it all week, but we smiled a lot. We laughed a lot. We sang a lot. We shared a lot while we traversed the Southern Island of New Zealand. And that was really special. Um, I, I got to race Pisgah stage race with Emily three years ago, maybe, maybe more as partners. I love those partner stage races. They are like the most challenging and enriching way to do bikes. Um, doing it with your partner, your life partner is even more challenging and even more enriching. And, and that while it's close to home may be a, a high point, but, um, We've had some cool, some cool experiences doing that stuff, and I couldn't pick a, I couldn't pick a favorite. <laughs> Throughout your career, what's the lowest moment you've had? Has there ever been a moment you're just like, I'm hanging it up, I'm done? There's been a bunch of them. No, I don't know that I've ever wanna wanted to hang it up. Um, I don't know that I could. It's been too good to me and too much of a through line. And there's, there's always a new angle to enjoy this thing called bikes to me. Um, whether that's in the industry or it's or as an athlete or is it's, it's, uh, covering something for media or whatever, you know, there's always a new angle. It's a, a new type of bike, right? And maybe I'll be an e-bikist, <laughs> um, next. There have been injuries that have been really challenging when I was trying to trying to get that sort of pro racer traction. I had a really nasty IT band injury, which I have a history of. I have some hateful, hateful muscles and tendons sometimes, um, and that that took me off the bike and for months. I mean months. And I had another little bout of that in uh, spring of last year. At the same time, Emily had broken her leg. You know, she'd um, she'd crashed and broken her leg, and sh she was off the bike and totally incapacitated when she should have been enjoying her first summer break since she works in academia. Um, and it was like, here, I was just laid up. Now you're laid up. God, are we gonna do with ourselves? Um, so I've had a couple of those moments, and they've always been new and challenging and I'm, I'm so high energy that I, and I'm a feeler too. Um, that gets me into trouble, but I, I feel, and I emote with stuff and that makes riding an injury wave really hard sometimes, <laughs> particularly when, you know, my partner's injured too. Like it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, health is wealth. It's uncanny mm -hmm. how many industry or athletes we talk to who yeah. have had such hard times with injuries. Yeah, you know, it's definitely uh, uncanny how that can bring you down. 
on the one hand, it seems a little bit petty, and I, I recognize that. And, and when I had an IT band injury, um, that's like an overuse injury, right? Like, boo-hoo, I, I worked too hard. <laughs> I had too much fun, and now it hurts. <laughs> definitely not like that. Um, but it is, yeah, you kind of feel like that's part of that experience as, a, as, a, as an athlete when you have that injury. is like, man, I'm, I'm bummed because I can't do the thing that I get this thrill off of. But I'm also I'm also bummed because like I, I'm not permanently incapacitated. Like I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm not, you know, there are people that have it so much worse than me. I shouldn't feel this bad. Like there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into that. And I, I don't think that that's to be to be judged or to be hard on ourselves for. Um, but it is it is part of, you know, that experience, both because we form very real chemical addictions to endorphins. Yeah, I think that's a huge part that's a, of it. It's a real thing. Um, I mean, we we're all we're all a bunch of endorphin junkies, and also because it takes out our through line. You know, just like now in this COVID nineteen pandemic, we're all looking at each other like through our screens, like, geez, they're having a lot of fun, and <laughs> and it's like nobody's having fun right now. And if they are, it's not their preferred kind of fun. But you get such this filter now, social media especially, and you're like, man, I'm. I'm just missing out. I have FOMO from all the all of the stuff that I'm not doing, and that can be toxic too. Yeah, know? that being down physically and 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 physical health just trickles right into your head too. You know, it's, it does. it's amazing how they uh, complement each other. Yeah, it definitely is. What about uh, Gordon? Let's switch gears to training. What are how do you train? Where do you find your most success with with training? Good question. Um, and that's changed. That paradigm has changed for me in the past couple of years. I I used to have all the time in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, a 20-something hour week was like, easy. I work part-time and I'm not dating anybody. Right. <laughs> Great. You right. know, Emily and I still don't have kids, but, um, you know, we are married. We do, we do have a dog. Um, we do, you know, both have relatively high stress, high demand jobs. Mine is relatively flexible. Um, but when it's on, it's on, you know, and it could be a 60 hour week still. Um, so I used to be able to get that volume and I built myself into a, a pretty good rider with that base of volume. And then about three years ago, the tables turned and my job started getting serious. Emily and I planted ourselves and started building a life a little bit more. And, um, that time, was compromised. The volume hammer was no longer working for me. And it took me about three years of being frustrated with not being able to take hundred mile rides three times a week, um, to where I was like, this is, this is, you know, this is annoying. This is frustrating. And I actually, I've, I've had coaches in the past. Um, and those have been okay on and off relationships. I have a, I have a, a weird relationship with training in that I don't like some of the technology that makes that really effective. I don't want to get on my bike and have a, a connection error prevent my ride from being what it should be or start my, start my ride out on that foot, right? Zeroing a power meter and all that stuff. And that just really tease me off. But I, I, I had a friend reach out um, last summer after I was recovering from my injury and Emily was battling on the other side of hers. And he said, Hey, you know, um, a, a friend named Elliot Baring, who, who's a young dude who lives in North Georgia, but really accomplished rider, very well, uh, credentialed as a coach, um, for a young guy who's ton, had a ton of experience and, and again, a ton of credentials, um, said, Hey, like, let's, let's do some, 
let's do some work. <laughs> and I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so Elliot has coached me for almost a year now and has that, that having a coaching relationship has really helped me get back to a, a healthy place with, with training. Um, rather than being frustrated that every day couldn't be a hundred mile epic. Um, it's helped me take a lot of comfort in, the days that are rest days or the days that, um, are very focused and very hard work. You know, it's, it's helped restore some confidence and comfort in what's going on versus just always thinking, always having, you know, to say FOMO again, always having FOMO for a bigger ride, like, you know, being confident in my process because there's someone who's, who's partnering with me to give some oversight into that process is really important. Um, you know, interesting. So how does that relationship work? Is, is, is your coach specifically coming up with a training plan for you? Or is it constantly evolving? Is it just mm -hmm. more inspirational? How does that, uh, keeping you motivated? How, how does it work for you? Um, I don't take a lot of inspiring. I'm pretty good at that. Blessedly. I'm pretty, I'm pretty able to find a silver lining and, and get to the carrot. Um, what I'm not good at is, is sitting what, I, what I've learned I'm not good at is sitting down and structuring um, because I, I, I can do that. I have all the, the experience to be able to do that, but I just don't. It doesn't happen. Um, I'd rather spend that time riding, right, is, is the, the ultimate reason probably. Um, so Elliot has done a really good job in, in – um, and he and I communicate, uh, you know, like, like two athletes too. Like he knows, he knows me well enough. We, he and I have been race partners a couple of times. Um, we've, we've trained a bunch together, you know, so he knows, he knows the, the work that I know how to do. And so he, it, it definitely isn't necessarily a training plan that your average person would sit down and say, that'll work for me. It's not canned. It's, it's customized every week based off of, based off of real goals. You know, we sit down and we say, Hey, what are, what are good goals this year? What am I keen on doing? Or what are Emily and I keen on doing together? Um, and that changes about every, every couple of months. Um, you know, we, we identify, we put a lot down on paper in pencil. And then as we get to, you know, a couple of months out from those events, we, I'm able to commit and say, yep, we're going in this direction. We're doing this thing. This is the thing that's happening. And some of that's sponsor related, not much of it. Um, some of it's opportunity related, some of it gets gets tossed in the trash bin because of a COVID nineteen pandemic, um, you know. But uh, it, it's it's totally tweaked and customized and tuned, and we use all the regular tools that um, you know other athletes will use, like training peaks and and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but it's been good. It's been really healthy for me to restore that confidence to a training cycle. Right. Yeah. What about on the level of accountability? <laughs> I'm again, I'm pretty good there. And, and I don't, um, you know, it, it's nice to have, it's nice to have somebody that sees that I did or didn't complete. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm pretty good after, you know, 20 years of doing it. Right. If it's, if it's in the book, if it's in the cards, if my body can do it, it's going to do it. And sometimes even if it's not, it's going to do it, um, to my detriment. But um, accountability component is nice, but I've never personally, I've never felt like that was, I mean, I want to ride. I want to go out and do stuff. If anything, it's, it's hard to not do the longer rides when I do have the opportunity, even though the work that I need to get done is a shorter, you know, it's a two hour ride right. and I, I have four hours that day. Like that's harder for me. So in that way, accountability is a thing between, you know, Elliot and I, between my coach and I, um, but as far as, uh, 
you know, man, I really need to ride today because it's on my schedule. Like Emily, on the other hand, she she also coaches with Elliot now starting recently. And um, her relationship is very different because she doesn't know she doesn't have that wealth of um, experience where she knows all about different thresholds and different intervals and different um, teasing out different different results from the body or working different systems like you know so for her the accountability is really good it's really good um, she works a hard job and so that's important at the end of the day she comes home and she's like man I don't really want to ride but I, I need to you know if this right. goal at the end of the month or in two months is real to me and it is then this is this is the step I can take today to get there um, and that's important that's you know yeah, I've seen some coaches really be instrumental in some breakthroughs for some athletes. And yeah. uh, I always find that dynamic interesting. And like you say, everybody has a different relationship with their coach. They get yeah. different things out of it. It's, yeah. I, I love hearing what that is. And there's there's different coaches for different times in your life, too. I think that's also important. People tend to think, oh, so, you know, my my coach and I just aren't jiving. Like, that's okay. That's cool. You know, I mean, there's sometimes that that's, there's bad coaches and good coaches. Objectively. There's a lot of coaches out there. Um, not all of that. And, and race results do not, do not indicate coach results. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm the first one to say that cause there's a ton of clueless bike racers out there. <laughs> there's a ton. Um, and some of them are real fast. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Good what about what about you personally? Has there ever been a breakthrough in performance where you just had that aha moment? And and if there was, if you can pinpoint that, what what do you attribute it to? I know that in twenty twelve through fifteen, I I was able to get a lot of volume, <laughs> just ride a lot. Um, in a, in a sometimes structured way, sometimes not. And that dude, I joke sometimes that I've been cruising on 2014's volume for six years now <laughs> at this point. And it's not even true, but it, you know, it feels like it. Um, I don't know that there's been one single moment. There have definitely been, you know, I mentioned the Shenandoah 100. There've definitely been moments where I realized, Oh, I was pretty good at that. And it felt pretty natural. And it was, it was easy to build for and easy to complete or manageable to complete. There've been those times, and a lot of times they're they're hard, hard events. Um, I, I kind of joke with Emily sometimes. You know, I did the Mid South, which is a huge, you know, three thousand rider gravel race in in Oklahoma. I did that a few weeks ago, and I joke I was the first adult to finish. Um, you know, I was I was fifth overall, but we, you know, there were three world tour riders in the pack, and there were cyclocross world champions, and there were all these, I mean, all these amazing, super gifted athletes that, because the day was just so damn hard, I mean, it was just endless clay, mud, and just really hard going. Um, you know, I, I, I have this gift of being able to push through that stuff that, whether it's mental toughness or physical endurance, you know, um, I have this gift for that. And, and whenever those moments happen, those are kind of aha moments. Those are like, man, mm, damn, I'm like that. doing the right thing. I'm doing, I'm doing good at this. Um, and it's, you get the chills from that stuff, man. I mean, you get to the near the end of a hundred mile mountain bike race and you're doing well. I remember in 2015, I won the Kohata 100 overall on a bike with one gear, um, that beat everybody. 
And that's happened. I've been really blessed to have that happen a couple times to me. And that's like, that's an aha moment. That's like, dude, it didn't, I, my legs are so good today. I don't even need ears. Like this is some, this is some crazy man. Um, and I beat a guy in a sprint that year and it was like, that doesn't make any sense. How does that happen? Uh, I don't know. Right, right, right corner at the right time is how that, that year happened. Um, but no, I mean, there's definitely been those aha moments, but never, never an inflection point when, it all made sense, but they happen and they're glorious, man. <laughs> what advice would you give to a young 16, 17 year old rider, young lady or young gentleman who, uh, who wants to, wants to really improve? If you had to give them yeah. one piece of advice, what would you, what would you offer? It wouldn't be trust the process. Everybody says trust the process. And it's like, I don't know what the process is. <laughs> <laughs> what process? Um, I see that and I always laugh. It, it, there's truth to it, but you got to know the process. You got to have a process. Um, my advice, and it's the same one that the, I always give at Cutaway Bike Camp because we do this amazing, we do a couple nights of like pro Q&A and I love those because um, those kids come up with the most sometimes wacky off the wall questions and sometimes you're like, whoa, that's deep. Um, and it's advice I give myself a lot, which is control the controllables and let the rest go. Um, do, you know, do your preparation, think through, make all the decisions that you may have to make in a pinch ahead of time. That's the advice I give people for hundred mile races. Like don't let yourself have to make a decision in the moment. Um, decide as much as you can commit to it, but control the controllables and let the rest go. You know, when, when we're in, in Tanzania and my back tire starts going flat and neither Thomas nor I have any idea how we're going to fix it. <laughs> like we, we control the controllables by pulling over, being calm, assessing the situation, seeing what tools we've got, seeing what options we've got. And, and, but we don't run around with our hair on fire, you know? And if we do, we don't do it for long because that's, a, that's a natural reaction. Um, but control what you can, um, as, as, as far into the future as you can, um, you know, pick, pick good travel arrangements, give yourself time when you arrive somewhere, like have, have not put some new thing on your bike. You don't know how to put together, like all of that, you know, be prepared. Um, I was a, I was an Eagle scout, am an Eagle scout. And, and that motto too, be prepared. is like, duh, it's such a no brainer, but so many people go into stuff willy nilly. Um, but yeah, control what you can. Let the rest go. Relax. Recognize that it, it's meant to be fun. If it stops being fun, talk to a mentor about why. You know, figure out why. And 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 it could be because it's not. It's it's training, and sometimes it's hard. Um, that can be the answer. It's not always going to be fun, but um, yeah, be. I think people spend a lot of time not being thoughtful about where they're at or their experiences too. You know. So I love yeah. that control what you can control and let the rest go. That should be yeah. a bumper sticker. <laughs> it should be probably, <laughs> I know I'm not the first person to say it. <laughs> what if, uh, what if, what if that rider wanted to turn it into a career? How, how, what would you, uh, how would you advise them to go about that? Maybe what's a good, good way to get sponsorship. What's a, what's a, what's a good way to take it, take it into more than just recreational and that next step to be a professional. 
Be good. Um, <laughs> not that sounds like be good at bikes. Um, Rebecca Rush has her be good foundation, and that's really what I mean. Like be be good. Be kind to other people. Be someone that enriches the other runner's experience as much as or more than your own. Be be good to race promoters. Be good to your local bike shop because I, every cyclist that I know who has. A, a whole world of opportunity came out of a really good bike shop relationship. Lots of them worked there. Lots of them, um, you know, shop ratted there and hung out. Like your local bike shop is such an amazing place to to get a kickstart. You know, you surround yourself in a thing. Um, that's that's big though. Be good. Be kind. Be enriching. Be someone that people want to be around and 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 build your own story too you know right now cycling man if you want to go after pro points they're there right the the olympics isn't happening this year but it will happen again um and that that goal's there right and there's a very established path to getting there but for the other you know i don't know how many million cyclists in the country and in the world um that that isn't a goal and you can still have amazing opportunities and sponsorship and experiences through just being being good being compelling being someone who enriches everyone's experience i mean some of the some of the most impactful other ex- sponsorship experiences i've had have come out of um you know the parking lot you know, hey, hey, I saw you. I saw you talking to so and so, and you represented the product really well. Like, thanks for doing that. Like, here's a wheel set, or here's, you know, we would you entertain this? And that's part of it. Also, also recognize your worth. Um, Emily and I are really blessed to work with the people that we want to work with, but that's not by chance either. Um, you know, if such and such a wheel brand comes up to me and and wants me on their wheels, it's like you know. That's all right. Like I have a, I've been racing on i9 wheels since 2006, um, and and they're really good to me. They have great product. They're super stylish. They're made, you know, in Asheville. They're made in America. Um, they're the right product for me, but they're also really awesome to work with. And that that's a factor, right? Don't jump on free product or uh, uh, that sort of thing just because it's there. Do it because it's right. And and if you engage with the product or the service or the experience or the brand. That's going to make you the best possible ambassador for that. And companies that are in a position, individuals, because it's always a person, right? Um, so there's always a person behind those opportunities and sponsorships. That person is looking for a compelling story and they want to get involved with you. Um, make the things that you do and you're involved in and the, the forces you put out into the world, make them worth being a part of. Um, and, and things will happen. They happen and they sometimes happen quick <laughs> and maybe you end up going like, ah, Jesus, this me, <laughs> um, you know, sort of like we talked about at the beginning. Super good advice there. It's great to be the fastest, but if no one wants to Should ride get... with you, it's probably not going to work out for you. In the long <laughs> and there can only be one fastest too. Yep. Yeah. You know, yep. so. no, for sure. Very cool. Well, what are you up to now? What's, uh, what's the rest of your 2020 year look like? I know it's, uh, definitely probably not what you had planned Mm -hmm. back in January, but what are you looking at right now as far as your schedule? I I grew a really cool mullet. I grew a (laughs) mullet. Um, it's pretty, pretty happening. Um, (laughs) you know, right, right now, man, we, we don't know. I, I, I'm talking to other event promoters and, and friends and athletes and, 
a lot of us took kind of a, a couple weeks away from the bike because all of a sudden the goals that we'd had were just poof gone. Um, nobody knows what the next couple months will, will have, but we'll control our controllables. You know, yeah. we're being told to stay home and, and not, uh, not be in large gatherings because that risks spreading a virus. You know, we're being told to, um, you know, stay close and stay or stay near our families and that sort of thing. And that's, um, so that's, we're doing a lot of that. We plant an awesome garden. Our garden's going to kick it this year, man. It's going to be so good. Um, cause we got tons of time, but, um, we're riding a lot. I, I'm probably going to come into the whatever race there is pretty fit. Cause it's been a really good spring. Um, Emily and I put on a gravel race that was supposed to happen April 11th. It did not. And that was a bummer, but that just gives us another year to plan to make it really awesome. Like all the Appalachian journey. Um, we just get another year to plan to make that really awesome. Um, but we've got some cool content stuff with, with sponsors and partners and friends that we're trying to work on a bunch of stuff like this, you know, doing a podcast with you that that's really fun time to share and reflect and grow. Um, what else are we doing? We've been riding a lot. It's been cool. I've been, I really like riding with my wife and she's been getting faster and stronger and that's super fun. I do, I do hope that we can race some this fall because that community is, is strong and it's healthy. Um, and I miss that, you know, I do miss that. I'm an extrovert enough to, to really want and need that. Um, yeah. What's the condition of the national forest and whatnot up near you here in Pisgah, they've closed down several roads and several trails. Are mm -hmm. you seeing any of that? Um, the riding around here is no good. Don't come. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, not really. We have a ton of national forests. We have the George Washington and the Jefferson national forest and a bunch of state forests around here. And fortunately that riding is not as, uh, marketed as the Pisgah stuff is. So they have not had to do any, any, large scale closures. There's some, um, some parking areas and things which are closed. And I think that's prudent because that's really where the risk is, right? right. Is, is not your snot bubble that you make on the trail as much as it's your snot bubble you make in the parking lot. Um, <laughs> ew. Um, but, uh, so there's a bunch of parking areas that are closed. There's, you know, the Appalachian trail is closed. Um, to, to traffic. Um, so, but the riding is still open and we have so many amazing, I mean, Emily and I took last weekend, we took a 65 mile road ride and we just kind of took our time, explored some new roads and I clocked 42 miles where we did not see a single car nice. you know, that, that wasn't like parked somewhere. And I was like, this is just like crazy cool. So we're working really hard to try and find some of those rides, like get the place we've never gotten and check it out and see some things you've never seen. And We've enjoyed that. So it's open. It's ripping. We had an early mellow spring. And so we've been riding a lot of backcountry stuff that we, we can't normally ride in the summer because it's covered in stinging nettles and just sweaty hotness. Um, yeah, it's open. Open for solo business. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm about to the end of my show notes here. Is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add? Um, I really, man, this is great. This I've I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and I really enjoyed the Tristan Cowie one. He's he's like he's such a strong dude. He's, he's such an a awesome strong guy, huh? Yeah, he's such a strong character. Um, ah, yeah, I love him. He's he's the greatest. Um, no, I mean, 
sounds like I was a rolling advertisement for Cutaway Bike Camp, which is cool. There's people who have kids that do that stuff. Cutaway's rad. I'm I'm most looking forward to that in the next couple months because it's in July, and I'm like, oh man, I sure hope we can do bike camp. Um, no, get 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 out and get a bike. Ex- you spend time doing that with family. Um, yeah, throw that's out some, great. Throw out some uh, sponsorship plugs here before we wrap this up. So I mentioned Blue Ridge Cyclery. I, I'm, I'm strategic about that, John. I'm, yeah, I'm efficient with that. Uh, <laughs> so I mentioned Blue Ridge Cyclery. Awesome couple of bike shops in Charlottesville, Virginia. I mean, we travel from Roanoke to go up there and we need something because it's such a good shop. Um, but Pivot Cycles in Arizona are my bike sponsor and they're amazing. Every single bike they make, they don't make cheap bikes, but they make great bikes. Um, every single one they make is is fantastic. Um, they're tough as nails. They're, they're awesome. Um, Industry 9 wheels and componentry down in Asheville, Shimano bikes. Um, I work with Carbo Rocket for Nutrition and Floyd's of Leadville. I brought them on as a CBD sponsor this year, and that's really changed our game. Um, you know, CBD is a pretty cool way to relax and recover. I've had um, some great experiences with CBD. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, I hadn't really had any until this year, and a friend reached out and was like, "Hey, would you would you try some of this stuff?" And I said, "Sure." You know, you have a good rep, so um, I did, and they're they're an awesome partner now. Um, the Appalachian Journey is our gravel race. It, it it's uh, it will happen in twenty twenty one. Yeah, get out and ride, man. Um, that's 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 the thing. You can check me out on on Instagram at at Quadsworth. Um, you can. I've got a website as well that can link over there, quadsworth.com. 